Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Mark 1, 1 through 11. These are the words of the living God, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier saying uh, than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, as we come into your presence, we acknowledge that you are with us here through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that Christ has come, that Christ has died, that he has rose again, and that he has sent his Spirit to come and live and to dwell within us. We pray that by that Spirit, you would illumine our hearts today so that we might behold marvelous things in your Word, so that we might understand this text and the things contained therein. Free us from distraction, O God, and help us to stay focused. Give us grace for this work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are finally entering into what has been called the New Testament, uh, but as we will see, not really much has changed since the Old, uh, in this portion of Scripture anyway. Uh, last week we looked at Malachi, and we saw there that the people were back in the land, uh, the temple had been rebuilt, and worship was being offered up, but it was all empty because God had not yet come to the people. And the people were wondering where he was at. Uh, And Malachi was a prophet who was sent to address Israel. And he prophesied of one day that uh, when God would come and he would bring blessing and salvation to the people suddenly. It's been 400 years. Uh, There has been no word sent to Israel by a prophet during this time. And then John the Baptist comes on the scene preaching about the coming of God. In our text today, we are going to see that God comes to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and He comes to give the people a new beginning, a new life, and a new relationship with God that they never had before. And He comes to bring that to us as well. So we see that first point, God comes to give a new beginning to His people in verses 1 through 3. Let's read that again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ... The Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The Gospel of Mark presents us with a new beginning. Uh, 
you may remember that our Bibles begin this way, right? In the beginning, the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ begins in the same way. This is a new beginning. Everything starts over with the ministry of this man, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament has been looking forward to this. God created everything good, if you will remember. But when mankind sinned, uh, the whole human race was plunged into ruin and rebellion. And God has been at work in a cleanup effort ever since to set all things right. The whole Old Testament is looking forward to this. It's looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ who sets things right once and for all. And here it is. Mark begins with it. He says, beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there in verse 1. Many times in ancient texts, this uh, would start this way. It would begin with a line that sort of introduced the first subject of the book, which seems to be the case here. There's a connection between what Mark says here and what he will say next about the ministry of John and the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is his subject, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Further, he refers to it as the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the word gospel throughout the Old Testament came to mean a proclamation of uh, good news. And oftentimes it referred to a victory that was won in battle. And in those days, a messenger would come on foot and he would proclaim that message. He would announce that good news to the people. And here, Mark presents Jesus as that good news. Jesus is the embodiment of the good uh, good news. He himself is the good news. He is the victory. He is the defeat. All of human history up until this point has been looking forward to this very moment. This is the pinnacle of human history. This is the turn in the road All the culmination of prophecy and revelation comes to us uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything is looking forward to this. The first word of verse 2 connects what is said there with the beginning of the gospel message. He says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Look there in verse 2 again. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make excuse me, his paths straight. When he says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, he's connecting the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, with the ministry of John the Baptist, who's clearly identified as the messenger in verse 4. So according to Mark, this message of the victory, this good news message about Jesus begins with the story of John the Baptist. He is the one who was sent to announce his coming. And so the story of Jesus or the proclamation about Jesus begins with John. Now, he says it is as Isaiah the prophet said, but some of you may have noticed that this first verse sounds strangely familiar. As a matter of fact, we studied it last week in Malachi chapter 3. That quotation is found 
in 3.1, if I'm not mistaken. I don't have it written down here. But that's one of the passages that we studied in detail. So what gives? He says that he is making a a quotation. He is quoting Isaiah here. uh, But then he quotes Malachi. Mark says, as Isaiah the prophet said, and then he quotes Malachi in combination with Isaiah. So the second part is Isaiah, and the first part is Malachi. Now, you will remember last week that we said that the Jews were looking forward to the coming of who? Who were they waiting for to come and bring judgment and salvation to the people? It was God, right? They're waiting for God to show up. In the last days, after they had rebuilt the temple, God promised to one day come and to fill it with his presence and to bring judgment to their enemies and to bring eternal blessings to the people. So what Mark does here by divine inspiration is he splices three different passages of Scripture together to make one magnificent point. Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, who has promised to come to the people in the last days, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me explain. It's really extraordinary what Mark does here. I mentioned that there are three passages, and I said Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40 is also there as well. But Mark also adds Exodus chapter 23, verse 20 into the mix. Now just listen, I'm going to quote the passages and I'll put the emphasis on the place where your focus needs to be. But Malachi 3.1, that is the passage from last week, says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And that is God, right? Exodus 23 is a passage about Israel when they're in the wilderness and they're getting ready to go to the promised land, and God says that he is going to lead them there and prepare the way for them there um, by his angel. He says, I will send my angel before you. This is Exodus 23. I'll send my angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I prepare. So there it refers to Israel, right? He's saying that he's going to go and prepare the way before Israel, and it's you, the second person. But in our passage, you may have noticed that when Malachi quotes it, he says, your. He says, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. So there is a reference to some third person in this narrative, right? We have God, we have John the Baptist, And who's the other person in our text today? Jesus. He's the only other person in the narrative. So what Mark does here is he takes those two passages that I mentioned and he connects them with the Isaiah passage that we quoted, which refers to the one who prepares the way for the Lord to come, which, by the way, is another reference to God coming in the Old Testament, and he applies it to Jesus. He identifies Jesus as that God. So what Mark does is he splices these three verses together to show us that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the representative of God's people Israel, who he has come to save, and Jesus is God. Now why does Mark say that he's quoting Isaiah, but then add these pieces from the other two texts? Well, probably because Isaiah captures best the the point that he is trying to emphasize with these three verses. And Isaiah also gives us the wilderness 
narrative that is prominent in this passage, John the Baptist goes into the wilderness, and that um, is coming from Isaiah. And this is not uncommon among the writers of Scripture. Uh, Matthew does it, Mark does it, Paul does it, and they all do it to prove a point. And here, Mark does it to prove one big, huge, massive point with his editorial patchwork, which is, Jesus is Yahweh, He is God, come to save His people. Again, we have to get the context into view. The people are back in the land. Uh, Worship is taking place once again at the temple, but it is all in vain because God is not with them. Uh, The people are just going through the motions, as it were, and so is the priesthood. Jesus tells them during His ministry, your hearts are far from Me. Right? They're offering the worship, but they're still adulterers. They're still oppressing people. They are still corrupt. And so God Himself is going to come and set all things right. Israel needed to go back out into the wilderness. They were in the promised land, but God had not yet showed up because they were in rebellion. So they needed to go back into the wilderness and re-enter the promised land in a right spirit. And so God comes as their representative in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and is baptized by John at the Jordan River. And by the way, the Jordan River is the place where the people initially entered into the Promised Land. So they go back out into the wilderness, to the Jordan River, where they enter in, and they must be baptized there. They need their hearts renewed, and they needed God to come and renew them. So God comes to them in Jesus and is baptized. Jesus goes out into the wilderness to the Jordan River where they needed to go, and he submits to baptism, which they needed to do. And as we will see, he begins to baptize people after he goes into the promised land. He doesn't baptize, but the disciples do. Um, But he begins to baptize those who follow him in this process with the Spirit. That's the problem, right? God has not showed up yet. They need God in their midst. God has to come take up residence among them. And he does this through the baptism of the Spirit. Friends, this is the good news. God has come to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has given us a new beginning. He has taken up residence in his church by the Spirit, and he is presently at work to make all things new. Think about it. Has God given any one of you a second chance in Jesus? Does God give us a new beginning in Christ? Well, yes, He does. Every one of us were born in sin. Kids and teenagers, you were born in sin too. None of us is innocent. Everybody has been infected by the sin of Adam right on down to our very core. And as a result, as soon as we know the difference between what is right and what is wrong, we are quick to run and do what is wrong. And that is a problem, because our sin separates us from God. But what God has done for us in Jesus Christ is He has started things over. On the cross, He died to take away all of our sin. He was punished for our sin on the cross. He received the punishment that we deserved on the cross. Because of that, we get to start over. Because we have this forgiveness, because it is a reality, 
in our lives. We are a new people. In the eyes of God, we are no longer identified with our sin. We are identified with Jesus, and therefore we are accepted and beloved. But friends, let me tell you, it doesn't stop there. Many of, many of you can think of times when God showed up in your life and gave you a second chance, a fresh start, or a new beginning, right? Think back over your lives at all the things that you have done and all the experiences that you've had, and you will realize that Jesus is the God of second chances. How many times was He there preserving you and watching over you, making sure that you got to the right place at the right time, making sure that you had the right friends in your life, making sure that you didn't stay bound up in that addiction or that you didn't die in that accident or that you weren't destroyed by that disease. Sometimes He shows up in the the most unlikely ways through the death of a loved one or while you were in prison or maybe it was while you were at the hospital or in the middle of your divorce or in a car accident. I mean... You fill in the blank. God is able to take all of these things and Jesus Christ and use them to begin something new in our lives. He has, He does, and He will. And because we are a people who have been forgiven and who have been given second chances, we ought to do the same. We are not to be unforgiving. We are not to take things and hold them over other people's heads. But we are to remember that God has forgiven us in Jesus Christ. And we are to remember that many of the times that those things that we're unwilling to let go of, those things are very much like, if not exactly the same, as those other things that we are holding over people's heads. Those things that God has forgiven us for. Those things that God has forgotten about in Jesus Christ. In Christ, He forgives our sins and He remembers them no more. And we ought to forgive others for their sins and remember them no more. We ought to do the same with our sins. We should forget them as God does. And move on. We should forget the sins of others and we should move on. In Jesus Christ, He has given us second chances and new beginnings. And we ought to be willing to give second chances and new beginnings to others in our life. So first, God has given us a new beginning in Jesus Christ. That was our first point. We see that second point, God has given us new life in Jesus Christ in verses 4-8. through New life. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. A couple of things here. John 
goes out and preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So why are these people going out to John to be baptized? If John's ministry is to prepare the way for the coming of God, they know that when God comes, if they're not right with him and they're not willing to receive him, God's coming is going to result in their judgment rather than their salvation. So they need to get right. So John is getting them ready to receive their God. By repenting of their sins and submitting to baptism, they are saying, we acknowledge that we have done wrong and that we need God to save us. Okay, This puts them in a right posture to receive Christ when He comes, who, by the way, is the one who will save them. Right? So they've got to receive Christ. Next, John comes to them in this weird dress <laughs> with a rather strange diet. Right? He wears a Camel, he wears a camel's hair and a leather belt, and he eats locust and wild honey. So what does this tell us about John? Well, John stands in the tradition, no, he's not a hipster. Okay, some of you. <laughs> he stands in the tradition of the prophets. Uh, he uh, specifically is being identified with Isaiah, or excuse me, Elijah here, who wore a garment of hair, and a leather belt. There's a, there's a connection being made. And if you remember, we said last week that Elijah was to come and he was to prepare the, the way for the people to um, receive their God. And Jesus tells us that John the Baptist fulfills that ministry. He says, John the Baptist is none other than Elijah if you are willing to receive him. That is, he comes in the spirit and power of the ministry of um, Elijah to prepare the people to receive their God. So John goes out into the wilderness. He's at the Jordan River and he's wearing these strange clothes. And this ought to ring some bells for the people. They ought to be making connections. It ought to signify to the fact, it ought to signify the fact to them that this is the one who comes to prepare the way for God. So we ought to listen to him. Right? Finally, he says there's one coming after him who is mightier than him and holier than him who will baptize them with the Holy Spirit. John the the baptizer baptizes with water, but Jesus gives the Spirit which that water signifies. Did you pick up on that? I'll baptize you with water, but he'll baptize you with water. The Holy Spirit. This is to say that when uh, Jesus comes, he inaugurates the new covenant that we talked about in our sermon on Jeremiah. The people were looking for God to come and dwell among them, to take up residence in their midst. And God does that in the person of Jesus Christ, who makes his people into a temple in which he resides by his spirit. This is what it's been. This is what they've been looking for. Everything is moving towards this. God's presence in their midst. To be baptized by the Spirit means to be united to Christ by the Spirit, the one from whom the Spirit proceeds. So what John is saying is that the one who comes after me, he's going to give you the thing that you all have been waiting for. The presence of God is going to come and dwell in your midst. God will come and take up residence in His people through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And as people submit to John's baptism, they are preparing themselves 
to receive Christ who will give them the baptism of the Spirit. When Jesus comes on the scene, John will point his followers away from himself to Jesus and he'll say, follow him. He is the one to whom you must look to be baptized in the Spirit, in other words. Friends, this is the way that God comes and takes up residence among us today. When you are baptized by the Spirit, you are made a member of the body of Christ, the place where the Spirit dwells, and therefore you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. This is to say, you are united to Christ, the one from whom the Spirit proceeds. But why does John say, I baptize with water, but he baptizes with the Spirit? Well, because John's baptism just prepared the people to receive Jesus, which is very similar to our baptism today. Um, Let me explain. God works through the means that he has appointed to deliver Jesus over to us. In other words, he works through baptism and through the Lord's Supper and through the preaching of the Word to give Jesus to us, but we must lay hold of him by faith. He delivers him over to us in these things, but we must lay hold of Christ by faith. When we trust in Jesus to the saving of our souls, we are united together with him. We are placed into the body of Christ by the Spirit. This is the Spirit baptism. Okay. Now, sometimes God does this at the moment that we receive baptism, but he does not have to. He does not have to. It is our trust in the things that God says about us in baptism that make these things a reality in our lives. So yes, we must be baptized, and yes, we must believe the things that God says about us in our baptism, and then when we do the things that baptism pictures, namely the pouring out of the Spirit, they become a reality in our life. All this to say, yes, you must be baptized with water. We are commanded to do so, but water baptism is not enough. You must be baptized by the Spirit. And as John says, there's one coming after him to whom we must look to receive the baptism of the Spirit. We must look to Jesus Christ and trust in him in order to receive it. Now, how do our lives change when God comes and takes up residence among us when we receive the Spirit baptism? What does it affect? Everything. (laughs) It changes everything. It affects everything. We become different people. As we said before, we become a new person. And therefore, everything we are and everything we do is different and new. Uh, There is to be a difference between you and the rest of the world, Christian, because God is living within you. And therefore, you're going to be different, right? It's going to have an effect on your life. Therefore, your marriages will be different. Um, Husbands and wives will be single-hearted They will only have eyes for one another. They will be devoted to that other person. They will serve that other person and that person alone. And you no longer look at the other men and women that you see in life the way that you used to before you were married. So it changes our marriages. changes the way that we raise our kids. We are most interested in the salvation of our kids' souls, right, as believers. And therefore, we are invested in seeing them walk with God in everything that they say and do. And we 
seek to reinforce that every opportunity that we have. Changes the way you run your business, right? Um, You run your business with honesty and integrity, even when nobody else is looking, right? Because God is looking, right? God lives within you, so he sees what's going on. So that has an effect on the way that you conduct business. Um, The influences that we allow into our lives, the friends that we hang out with, the music we listen to, the movies that we watch, everything changes. Even our worship changes. You'll seek to worship God in a right spirit all of a sudden, for the right reason, not going through the motions. Do you know that only believers can offer up true worship to God? You can't do that if you're not a believer. But God enables you by your spirit to worship Him, uh, by His spirit to worship you, uh, worship Him with a right heart. You will walk in humility, seeking to honor God in all that you do. This is to say that you no longer live for yourself, but you live for Him because He lives in you. And therefore, you'll make it your highest aim to glorify God in all that you do. At the end of the day, ultimately, um, your life is new and different because God is working in you to make you new and different. Okay? So God has given us new life in Jesus Christ. That was number two. Finally, we see that third point. God has given us a new relationship in Jesus Christ. We see that in verses 9-11. through 11. Let's read that again. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. First of all, we see that third person in the narrative that we were talking about before. Mark took Malachi and he changed it to say, I will send my messenger before your face to prepare your way. And we said that that person was being identified by Mark in his gospel as God. Well, here he is, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus comes as God to represent his people. He goes into the wilderness where they belong. And through the baptism in the Jordan River, which they needed. And then he enters into the promised land to bring about judgment and salvation on their behalf. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So here we have the inauguration of Jesus' mission. And when it says that the heavens were being torn open, it's alluding back to Isaiah, who said he wanted God to rent the heavens and come down. And throughout the Old Testament, when God comes down in this way, God is coming down in power to work among the people, which is exactly what he does here. The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus. Listen, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus to empower him for the ministry he is being called to. If John the Baptist is a new Elijah, then Jesus is a new Elisha, who received a double portion of the Spirit to carry on the work of Elijah in his absence. This is exactly what Jesus needs to carry out his ministry. Jesus will now go into the land and he will make war on the enemies 
of Israel, sin, Satan, and death. And as we'll see when we go throughout the narrative, that Jesus, He forgives sins when He goes into the land. And He casts out devils. And He even raises people from the dead. And at the end of it all, after He's put to death, He rises from the dead, defeating death once and for all. So He's empowered by the Spirit for this work. Finally, we have the proclamation from the Father with respect to the Son's ministry. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. This is uh, the stamp of approval on Jesus' ministry. The Father's putting His stamp on it. He is the Son of God. right? He's the Son of God. And He is the one that the Father has blessed to do this work. And the Father is declaring something unique about Jesus here in this, in this statement. It's as if he's saying, he's my son that I love. He's the one who shares union with me. We have an intimate relationship. There's none like him. He's his father's son, and with him I am well pleased. He is accepted and beloved. He's the one who holds the father's highest affection. No other mere man has ever received this sort of acclamation from God the Father before, nor will they ever. This is the Father's Son, and He loves Him more than anyone or anything. He is His Son, and upon Him He places His divine seal of approval. Jesus is the member of the Trinity that was set apart, that was appointed by God to carry out this work of bringing judgment and salvation to the world. He is the Son. This is His identity. And it is what makes him uniquely fit to carry out this work. Now, friends, in Jesus Christ, it can be said that we all uniquely share in this identity as well. By faith, we've been united to Jesus Christ and made members of his body. By pap- by, uh, Paul tells us in baptism that we are clothed with Christ. This is to say... You have been so intricately knit together with Jesus in salvation that when the Father looks at you, He no longer sees you, He sees Jesus. Did you know that? You've been united to Him, and therefore you enter into a union with Him, and by virtue of this union, you enter into this unique relationship that Christ has with the Father. This is to say you become sons and daughters of God. I think that that doesn't land on us oftentimes. You are sons and daughters of God. So in effect, God makes this proclamation over you, believer. Christian, the Father says to you, you are my son, or you are my daughter, and with you I am well pleased. Now, if that doesn't radically change your view of yourself and the world around you, I don't know what will. (laughs) The Father says to you, you're my son, you're my daughter, and I'm well pleased with you. This doctrine should totally renovate our thinking. Your identity is not found in the family that you are born into. It's not found in the color of your skin, or the color of your hair, or the color of your eyes. It is not found 
in the fact that you have made this mistake or that mistake. Your identity is not found in any of these things. Your identity is not found in the fact that you hold a certain status in the world or that you have a particular job or that you have these certain possessions and you, or that you don't have those particular possessions. <clears throat> your identity is found in the fact that you... Your identity is not found in the fact that you had a father growing up in your home or that you didn't have a father growing up in your home. Those who are adopted... Uh, those who have fathers who are no longer with us. Your identity is found in the fact that you have a Father in heaven who loves you and says that He is well pleased with you. So how should this change our thinking? How should this change our thought process when we are wondering if we are, if we are good enough, if we are measuring up, if we are beautiful, um, if we're backsliding, if we're losing or whatever? How should this change the way that we accept criticisms and accusations that are being leveled against us in life? It's during these times that we need to remember that you have a Father in Heaven who's well pleased with you and your status has not changed. This should change your thinking. The way you make decisions, the way that you raise children, the way that you love your, your wife, everything changes. Your identity is found in Christ and not in this world. It's not in the things that you have done or that you haven't done. It's found in the fact that you have a Father in heaven who loves you and nothing can change that. In closing, we have seen that the people of Israel in the first century were in very much the same situation as the Jews in the days of Malachi. They were back in the land. The temple had been rebuilt. Worship was being offered, but it was all empty. God had not come to yet take up residence among the people. The beginning of Mark's Gospel, that promise is fulfilled. God comes to take up residence in the people in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who baptizes with the Spirit. He is the one who brings every promise from the Old Covenant into reality. And indeed, with His coming, He gives all the people of God, including us, a new beginning, a new life, and a new relationship with God. Let's pray.